Cool. Sorry. Nice. Are, are you genuinely going to do the podcast with those things on? Yeah. Welcome to Thinking David about primary education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time for but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And to the focus of this episode will be five things every teacher needs to know about reading comprehension. But first, Chris, what are you reading for? What are you reading for? This week, amongst other bits and pieces I've been reading, I went back to arguably my favourite paper on the subject of reading, which is called The Role of Background Knowledge in Reading Comprehension, a Critical Review by um, Reed Smith, um, uh, is the main author, Pamela Snow and others are involved. It is a joy to read. Uh, I mean, so much when you're when you're dealing with reading research and educational research generally, it's not always that well written often it's obviously it's a difficult thing to take a complex subject and make it digestible um but they absolutely achieved that with this paper uh, alongside connecting together lots of different bits of pieces relating to uh, not just reading comprehension but they connect reading comprehension to ideas relating to cognitive load theory i think it's a really thoughtful and nuanced paper brilliant to read one to go back to time and again for anyone who is interested in the role of background knowledge in reading and increasingly it is an area of interest when it comes to reading development and rightly so and this is a wonderful place to start uh what about you neil what are you reading for recently i've kind of been going down the, the science literature route and looking at um what stuff is out there in terms of you know, the science if you want to put a better word on teaching science and i came across students ideas about plants and plant growth and effectively quite a small little study where a researcher asked uh 200 kids between uh kindergarten and i think grade eight so our kind of like year one through to year nine just what they understood about plants and their kind of conceptual understanding of what a, a plant is and i think kind of my main kind of like takeaway from it is just how important it is when you're teaching um you know something as broad as plants is that you know you're just providing as many uh different prototypes of what uh, a plant is whether that's you know flowering non-flowering uh you know even tr the idea of in the paper they specifically mentioned that particularly for quite young children they kind of didn't necessarily get the connection that a tree is a plant um and just so when you're kind of first introducing this concept just how important it is to kind of throw every sort of prototype or every kind of prototype on the continuum of what a plant is even throwing a few things that you may be um may look like a plant because they share a similar characteristic like perhaps a like a mushroom they'll see the stalk of a mushroom and just assume that oh i know a mushroom is something that grows in the ground um and oh this little thing here must be a stem so therefore i'm going to assume that it's uh you know a plant so just kind of yeah really kind of reiterated that idea of 
showing that the broadness of that category when first you know introducing concepts that kind of are kind of quite wide ranging and what they can uh, what they can be what about you Kieran what are you reading for really interesting paper about fractions and the teaching of fractions it's called representations in teaching and learning fractions and it's by Ted Watanabe it's from 2002 and it has some really interesting I don't know, points for discussion about what we mean when we say model, what we mean when we say representation and how the two can be interchanged, perhaps not for the right reasons. And uh, so it really, really goes in depth about the decisions we make when we're representing sort of proportional relationships. And so I'd recommend checking that out. And it's one of the few NCTM, you know, the American body, um, one of the few papers that's not behind a paywall. And that's one of the things that disappoints me so much about that that body is that uh, lots of their really interestingly titled papers are are not free to access, and uh, that doesn't seem like the point of math education to me. So, but we'll see that around for another time. So we've discussed reading, reading comprehension on the podcast before, but it's been, I reckon, somewhere close to two years since the last time we just sat down and looked at reading comprehension and how we might approach it in the classroom. And I thought of all the things that there are to know about reading comprehension and all the things we discussed, what might the five most important things be for teachers to know? So I don't know if we'll probably take a more discussion-based approach to this episode. We'll throw as many different ideas into the ring and then we'll sort of try and decide on those top five. And it might help people, I don't know, focus their CPD priorities for 2023-24 to think it okay. If my teachers know these five things, we'll be in a really good place to start. So I don't know, Chris, if I could throw it your way, what do you reckon one thing could be that people need to know? So I think a really good place to start are the enabling conditions that allow for comprehension in the first place. So before we get into the details of how we might think about comprehension, the interconnected bodies of knowledge that underpin it, it's worth thinking about what else needs to be in place in order for comprehension to stand a chance. Um, and if we think to basically every model or every framework there is for describing reading, um, one thing that is included in there is the idea that um, in order for reading comprehension to take place pupils need to have um, a level of expertise in recognizing words and in particular they need to be relatively fluent in their reading um, what we mean by that is if the words aren't flowing to some extent at least then too much of a pupil's cognitive resources are then have to be devoted to that process of word recognition. And there's too little of those or too few of those cognitive resources that are left to be devoted to the challenging act of comprehending text. So I'd say like perhaps one of the most important things to know about comprehension is that it is underpinned by reading fluency, this um, flow of words as we read. Now it's tempting to look at it in just those terms, but I think it's also worth noting that there is, of course, a reciprocal relationship between fluency and comprehension. Because as I've said, 
fluency supports comprehension, but equally, the more that we comprehend, the more the re uh, reading itself can flow. So there is this reciprocal relationship, this um, virtuous cycle between the two. Absolutely agree with um, everything that Chris has said there, unsurprisingly for this uh, particular topic. Um, again, just worth bearing in mind, I think, this idea that it's perhaps a lethal mutation. I'm not sure, maybe not, maybe that's unfair, but it's quite easy to kind of get, uh, you know, some sort of magic number into your head as opposed to what the reading fluency, you know, the words correct per minute, if that's the, you know, that's the common metric that many people use. That passing that kind of abstract number means kind of like job done and like I can lay off the reading fluency practice now which you know really isn't the case evidently and we'll go into this a little bit more detail once the kind of tech structures and uh, you know get more complex it's likely that you know fluency will um, drop a little bit because they're just not used to the, that st structure of the text um, likewise as well you know the type of genre that you're reading could impact it. I know, for example, thinking back to kind of my own experiences as a reader back in you know, secondary school, whenever we were in drama and reading Shakespeare, you know, he starts every line with a capital letter, whether it's the end, but the end of a sentence or not. And so that kind of really stunts your, your fluency of reading that passage, because at that point, you know, you've seen a capital letter so long, just assume that, you know, right, I'm going to take a stop. <laughs> Um, because obviously a new sentence starting and obviously that massively uh, you know, changes the way that you might you know, pronounce a particular uh, phrase, sentence, uh, paragraph, whatever it might be. And so it's kind of really important to, I think, keep in the back of our minds when it comes to reading fluency, this idea that, you know, it's a continuum. It's not a kind of, you know, you get through the door with it and then it's like jobs are good and it's something that you kind of always have to be uh, you know, thinking and considering, and I'm sure, you know, those teachers who have taught year six and have taken year six through various, um, you know, different SATs papers, you know, they've experienced that firsthand where, you know, some of their fluent readers perhaps, you know, haven't quite got through as much of the paper that they thought they would. And one of the reasons might be because, you know, I'm thinking particularly back to, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but the music box, you know, that was quite a thick dense text where if your reading fluency you know really wasn't up to you know, par it would going to that would have impacted you massively so i think that would be the only uh, thing that i'd add on to um chris's idea then it can't exist without um comprehension can't exist without it um but equally it's important to kind of remember in the back of our heads that it's not a simple yes they're fluent enough no they're not there's a, kind of a whole wider continuum behind reading fluency that's worth bearing in mind yeah and and it's also as you've um, alluded to there text specific um to the point where for example there is this temptation to think okay these kids aren't fluent yet um and so comprehension isn't going to happen to the level i'd want it to so let's not worry so much about comprehension which firstly would be a, you know it's a very silly way to think about things because you can always be developing the bodies of knowledge upon which comprehension um, is based. But equally, you can recognize that with the text that a pupil has in front of them, that, okay, so 
maybe they're not fluent with the first time through of reading it, but they don't have to just read it once. You know, that might be what we do for assessment, but that doesn't have to be what we do in a given reading lesson. We can take a chunk of text and say, you know what? We are going to read it repeatedly. We're going to develop fluency. I'm going to, in for this text, I'm going to, you know, model it to you. And as well as that developing um, fluency more generally, it seems to research to death suggests there's this kind of transfer effect here. It also allows pupils to comprehend the text that's in front of them in a way that they would be able to do were they more fluent the first time they read it. So as well as uh, there being this continuum of fluency, uh, it's also the case that it's kind of specific to the text that's in front of the pupil, not just in terms of how difficult it is, but also their own familiarity with the words, the, the, the sentence structure, the way it's put together. So we can take advantage of this more flexible understanding of fluency to support comprehension um, in the lessons that we teach. But yeah, that's at heart, key thing. Uh, comprehension is underpinned by a certain level of reading fluency. So if you've got kids in your class who are struggling with comprehension, don't just assume that it is because they don't understand the vocabulary of the text or the sentence structure. It really might just be that the words aren't flowing um, to, um, a, to in a great enough extent in terms of the pace, in terms of the prosody, etc., that will allow them to comprehend it. Yeah, I think it's worth just being really clear uh, when we say fluency, we're talking about the, the kind of three strands. We're talking about automaticity, uh, prosody, and uh, accuracy. So obviously, you know, you could be really fluent and have good prosody, but if your accuracy, you know, that might be a particular strand within it that, you know, really is going to let you down. And I think I kind of saw it mentioned in, I think, in a couple of articles, you know, how, you know, actually is the accuracy that, you know, potentially can make a lot of that difference between that comprehension um, being there, um, you know, being able to occur and not. So definitely yeah. worth keeping in mind about yeah. that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're not decoding the words correctly, what chance do you have, you know, in, in the end? Um, and it's tempting to skip ahead. It's tempting to look at parts of reading fluency and say, well, you know what, let's see if we can focus on pace or focus on prosody. If you're not like recognizing the words on the page accurately, then it's it, it's something wrong that's that's flowing. And so the chances of it actually making sense to you are fairly limited. Nice. I mean, that all makes sense. Fairly uncontroversial. What have you, what have, what have you got for us, Neil? What would the first thing you'd say is that all teachers need to know about comprehension? So really kind of coming off the back of uh, my talk that I've kind of used this kind of academic year at Research Ed, um, it's just this idea of the lack of transfer transferability of comprehension kind of between texts and that, you know, understanding text A isn't necessarily a good proxy for understanding, you know, text B because the only real kind of transferable skills related to comprehension are those things that are biologically primary. So obviously getting kids to answer, um, you know, question types, you know, Shanahan in one of his blogs mentions how, you know, there's no research evidence at all to suggest that these are even a thing. Um, and then he talks about how these comprehension, you know, these kind of skills that then kind of get um, you know, wrapped up in these kind of question types uh, you know, they lack any kind of psychological reality, which, you know, is quite a damning phrase for me, I think. 
Um, and I think, you know, that kind of makes sense when we kind of understand, you know, what the brain does when it tries to, you know, comprehend something and kind of, you know, the creation of these situational models. I think that kind of makes, it kind of gives great clarity as to why, not necessarily just kind of different question types, but why I think any type of pre-ordained designed comprehension task by a third party um, is likely to fail because they've kind of assumed what the key points are that the situational model that the children in front of you, which there'll be 30 different ones because a large part of how we comprehend is kind of overlaying these kind of real basic propositions of the text with our own, um, you know, background knowledge, you know, this third party is assuming that these questions are going to allow this, these pupils to create that accurate representation of that text, which just isn't true, because what they are doing effectively is just, well, you know, here are the reading domains from the key stage two sats. We're just going to kind of make sure we've asked uh, a few questions that kind of relate vaguely to these things. Um, usually what happens is there'll be like, you know, one or two summarizing, one summarizing question. There'll be one prediction question because, you know, they're only worth about five to, you know, seven percent of the marks on the final paper. But we're going to ask lots of inference style questions, lots of, you know, retrieval questions and you know retrieve information from the text type questions because you know they they can be worth as much to 50 percent of the mark you know i've had my kind of you know, well, the wool's kind of been lifted from my eyes and you know i was fully on board with that kind of teaching and it's only kind of been the last kind of two or three years by understanding what you know compre or you know understanding this one model of comprehension is either this you know construction integration model um, that it's really made clear to me why any kind of preset question is doomed to fail because there's that assumption that that question will be able to pinpoint why the situation model of those children perhaps you know isn't accurate enough to generate the meaning that's you know the author of the text desired and that's why I think when it comes to kind of comprehension what like third party companies can do is kind of almost I think just you know like study guides almost kind of think you know here's like the tier two the tier three vocabulary that's going to be really useful and here's some you know discussion questions that you may want to point out perhaps but I really do think anything more than that um yeah probably isn't that useful I think in kind of developing the comprehension for those you know 30 plus kids uh, that are you know in front of you you need to know them as a class and you need to have that idea of being right knowing this class where do I think this uh, construction integration model may falter do I need to tell them something do I need to you know probe something a little bit more or you know can are they able to you know comprehend this if I explain what this word means etc in some ways this ties in with one of the more fashionable debates of the last five years that I've been on edu Twitter, which is this idea of generic transferable skills versus, you know, interconnected bodies of knowledge and which one kind of makes sense. And often people talk about, well, actually skills are just, you know, if you zoom out far enough from knowledge, that's what you get, et cetera, et cetera. But it's worth kind of pinpointing what this means with regards to reading. If we're saying that um, like inference isn't this generic transferable skill, then what is it? Well, 
depends what you mean by skill. Skill can mean anything. It can mean a body. It can itself mean a body of knowledge. It often does in research. It can just mean a capability. What we really mean when we say something like inference isn't a like generic transferable skill, what we're really saying is this isn't a thing that we can teach that then will apply necessarily to another text with a different set of words within that text. The challenge with that is, of course, that inference, while not being a transferable skill from one text to another, there is a general capability that people have to infer that goes beyond reading into the kind of inferences that we make when we're having a conversation. If I say, you know what, I'm feeling pretty thirsty, I'm going to go to the bar, you're likely to infer that I'm going to get a drink. It's not obvious, I've not stated it, but you're likely to make that inference. And it's those kind of inferences that we're making when we read text. And this, these, this is an essentially something that's seemingly biologically primary and specific to the thing that we're talking about. There is always a bit of detective work involved with comprehending um, discourse between two people. It's something that we're always doing, but it doesn't seem to be the case, or there doesn't, there's no real necessary basis for us to think, oh, put aside the thing that we're talking about, there is this capability that we can teach that somehow disconnects from that content. It is completely embedded within that content. And I think that aligns with um, a sensible perspective of what knowledge is, in effect. The same is true, of course, for, you know, summarizing, retrieving and all of these things. If you don't think that if you, it's tempting to think that summarizing is this skill because we can get better at it. But all you have to do is to find out from um, someone, uh, ask them to find the main idea or to summarize something they know loads about and then ask them to summarize something that they're a bit less familiar with and they will struggle. Ask me to watch a baseball match and then summarize what's gone on. I wouldn't stand a chance. Ask me to summarise a football match, I, I'd, be, I'd like to think I'd do a fairly decent job. They, those two domains aren't particularly far removed. They're, they're both competitive ball sports played over the space of a couple of hours, and yet in one I would be hopeless at summarising, and the other I, I'd like to think I'd do a pretty good job. And again, it's because I know about some one of those things, and I know next to nothing about the other and the same is true with summarizing a text the same is true when it comes to retrieving from a text the same is true um for um lots of these other things that we that are the kind of like the content domains of the sats so yeah couldn't agree more i imagine these are kind of this is a sentence we're going to say over and over in this you know podcast neil we are quite closely in alignment um in our thoughts on reading comprehension uh, but yeah, couldn't agree more with this idea about uh, transferable skills not really being something we should target in our teaching, which I guess brings us on to um, what perhaps we might do instead or what kind of bodies of knowledge we might be seeking to build instead. How contested is the biologically primary aspect of all this? Honestly, it's not usually discussed in these terms, to, uh, to my experience, from my kind of reading of um, papers. The way that it is discussed is if you go into, if you read books on spoken language development of say one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, those kind of those, the really interesting years of spoken language development where stuff is changing like exponentially, you will find discussions of this stuff. You'll find discussions of how 
particular environments allow for this stuff to develop. Now, it's rare when you read this stuff that you see people explicitly talking about biologically primary, but it's absolutely the case that they're talking about the reading between the lines that young children do and how this develops naturally from experience as a component of their language development. And yeah, the connecting that to the idea of biologically primary learning rather than biologically secondary um, just kind of makes sense to me. So it might be contested, but only so far, I think, as the, the underlying ideas of biologically primary and biologically secondary are in, in the first place. Yeah, so like you said, Chris, you've both sort of been thinking along the same lines. Is there anything you think that you would put in this group that you might think Neil might not be as convinced about? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, perhaps the value or lack thereof of disciplinary reading at uh, for younger kids, maybe. Um, I'm not convinced that it is that easy to target or that easy to introduce for a primary level. I think there are certain things we can do, but I guess it depends how we define disciplinary literacy. Because if you're talking about disciplinary literacy as the kind of reading and writing that a scientist will do or a historian will do, then yeah, I think there are bits and pieces we can do relating to that. If we're being a bit more, if we're looking at the other aspect of disciplinary literacy, which is the idea of helping pupils to understand the disciplinary knowledge of a given subject through an understanding of how literacy is used in that subject, I think that's... Um, even if it can be achieved at a primary level, I'm not sure that there, I think there are much bigger fish to fry to the point where I'd need to be in a school for like a decade before that became my, my, my main focus as a literacy lead. But happy to be, for people to suggest I'm wrong. This is not something that I'm certain about. Would definitely, I think, include aspects of disciplinary literacy, but they would very much fall within the, the former uh, example that you gave um just you know and i'm talking about some real you know quite simplistic ideas in that you know if you've just done a science experiment you're going to write up you know maybe just two parts of it you know you're going to talk about how you know i know it's not just scientists but you would talk about how scientists in particular you know they love a subheading subheading is really important for scientists because it helps make everything that little bit clearer it kind of gives them that idea you know what's coming up um you know what you're about to read is related back to this idea of you know the method or the conclusion or the hypothesis whatever it might be and you know there's quite a lot of research out or a fair bit of research out there to suggest that you know you know kids sometimes they skip over these things because they don't think that's you know particularly important now you absolutely could argue that this idea of subheading you know isn't necessarily you know just uh, but it, and it doesn't just belong within the scientific discipline you know that's a kind of a a wider you know literacy idea but I think it's one of those things that you want to talk about you know as when we're writing as scientists you know this is something that you know we want to really make sure that we include because you know scientists do use these things quite a lot and I think as more people you know seem to be going towards you know some sort of like extended writing as part of some sort of outcome within the wider curriculum 
I just think providing those, you know, some examples of what this disciplinary writing might look like through reading a disciplinary text, you know, is probably a useful idea to do. But I'd only be looking at this, you know, as you say, you know, comfortably, um, you know, latter end of year five, year six-ish time for, you know, to go to like the big ideas. Um, but clearly, you know, secondary colleagues as well. Uh, I know this is thinking deeply about primary education. We're in the fortunate position where we do absolutely and, you know, quite rightly uh, extend our audience to secondary colleagues. And so I think, you know, for them as well, this idea that, you know, there are within the disciplines of the teachers, you know, I think because this idea of like whole school literacy at secondary schools was like tarnished quite a lot. And if I think if you mention whole school literacy to uh, teachers of a certain age who went through a certain point, it kind of fills them with horror a little bit, but it's that understanding that no, within that discipline, within your discipline that you teach, you know, there is some worthwhile, you know, literacy knowledge within your discipline that is you know worth teaching and worth um you know investigating and how that can you know support uh, you know, you know, the pupils in front of you i think it, like a way to summarize um like what i think about disciplinary literacy at a primary level um that probably kind of i hope does a better job of what, what i did a moment ago is to say if if a, a literacy lead came to me and said, what do I need to know about disciplinary literacy? My answer would probably be, you don't. Um, not because disciplinary literacy isn't important, but because the aspects of disciplinary literacy that I care about are things that, they're, that are already almost certainly going on in the school just because the, the rest of the curriculum is, is adequate. So if they're looking at sources in history and discussing them and talking about their validity, maybe the teacher in there doesn't know that they're doing disciplinary literacy, but they are. Um, equally, as Neil says, if, the if someone's talking about um, an accurate description of the methods you used so that someone could potentially replicate your experiment and see if they got the same results in science, well, you're doing disciplinary literacy. It does, and, and I, I think that kind of, the most important stuff related to disciplinary literacy at primary level just kind of happens anyway if the rest of the curriculum is good. So I'm not. I'm not fussed if uh, a primary literacy lead or primary teacher or senior leader doesn't know what disciplinary literacy is, if that makes sense. Assuming the kind of the rest that they're on the ball with the rest of the curriculum. It it feels like it's going to be quite difficult to separate you guys in anything. I don't know. I I, I kind of always felt the idea of comprehension strategies sort of divided us a little i'm probably more pro strategy than you are chris perhaps i don't want to put words in your mouth obviously but um i think you know there's for me there seems to be enough evidence that suggests that you know teaching these things are a good thing and that you know they aren't just something that should be left to uh you know like an interventionist group you know who's if you're thinking about the uh, you know, a simple view of reading and you know, thinking about um, you know where you know, word uh, recognition decoding is all fine and dandy but for like some reason they're still not comprehending you know those used to be the kinds of pupils that you would then kind of give reading strategy interventions for but I just think yeah I think there's a fair bit of evidence that suggests that 
do you can do these things whole class and that I kind of think like phonics it, it benefits everyone and certainly isn't necessarily going to harm anyone by teaching them you know a few of these strategies and I certainly don't mean and I'm sure you know that I don't mean that you know somehow you do these for weeks and weeks on end and like the strategy becomes the goal of the reading instruction that's definitely not the point um yeah, strategies sort of the term strategy means that you deploy it strategically so it's just like a tool in the toolbox for children to use when they realize you know, um you know oh you know this construction integration the situational model that i'm trying to form in my head you know, yeah something's gone wrong there so i need to go back and fix that which I'm um, nine times out of 10, it's probably just, you know, reread it again, perhaps a little bit slowly, uh, a little bit slower to make sure that you've actually, you know, read it accurately. Um, but I think, you know, there are other, you know, obviously other strategies to, that are worthwhile in teaching. And obviously that the first strategy I kind of think it always makes sense to go with is actually just teaching children explicitly the idea that when you read something, it's meant to make sense. And if you even if it doesn't, something's gone wrong somewhere. So you need to do something to try and fix it. Um, the research literature calls that one a comprehension monitoring. And it's it's quite a simple one to, you know, the idea of, you know, being meta about, you know, the your own comprehension and realizing that something doesn't quite seem right here um, you know, is quite an important one to begin with. But I'll give, before we go into the different ones I'll teach, I'll give Chris a time to uh, rebuttal my claims perhaps you'll tell me that um he's seen the light and agrees with me or <laughs> oh I, I don't think uh well I, I, my opinion hasn't on comprehension strategies hasn't changed much since uh since i wrote them about, about them uh in my book a couple of years ago um i absolutely think they're valuable um i think that they can and should be taught um where i perhaps perhaps disagree um is you know the nature of the research on this stuff is that you want to teach them quick you want to teach them in in one go and so we've got lots and lots of these bits of research that says look we're going to teach this stuff for in a block of three or four weeks and we're gonna you know quite an intense focus and then we're going to see if it has a result and generally it does and the temptation from that is to then go well you know what that's how we need to teach them in the classroom we need to teach them in kind of intense blocks of you know i explicitly modeled them and then there's this gradual release of responsibility and i don't think that's necessarily the case i mean the nature of the research into this because this is the way that the research is conducted that's all we've got we don't really have great a great deal of research where people have said you know what i'm going to look at summarizing visualizing self-questioning kind of those comprehension strategies that seem to have the greatest effect and we're going to embed them into our um, comprehension instruction over the space of a couple of years and then see whether that's helped compared to an equivalent class that hasn't included these comprehension strategies. And yet I suspect that that's probably the most sensible way to teach these. Beyond an intervention, I think if you're going to get pupils to, um, in effect, think a little bit more carefully to take a more active role to um, recognize their own responsibility when it comes to um, comprehension that why would you not do that piece by piece over a longer period of time rather than match it up kind of like perfectly with the way that the research initially teaches this stuff um i'm i'm 
I, okay, I don't think I've studied the research into comprehension strategies as carefully as you have, Neil, but I'm not as convinced that there is really great evidence for the teaching of them on a whole class level. I think most of this tends to be inferences that are made based on smaller groups. And generally, where you take this smaller group, group stuff and try and scale it up, it doesn't seem to have a particularly... It's particularly if you do this with a large enough sample, it doesn't seem to then have the impact that people are after. Um, a good example of this being, um, what's it called? Reciprocal reading. So reciprocal reading, the EEF have done a big old trial on that, and it seems to have just about had an effect when done with a small group, and that effect's disappeared when you're looking at whole classes. And this is big sample. Um, I think it tells us something about what comprehension strategies teaching possibly does. So yeah, where, where I would agree with you is I think the sensible thing to do is to teach them. I think the sensible thing to do is to embed them into instruction. I don't think we, in practice, there's any disagreement there. I think where there might be a bit of disagreement is that I've got this sneaking gut suspicion that if you took all of these interventions and all of this research that said, look, teaching this comprehension strategy works and the control group instead of having relatively poor reading instruction or nothing, which is usually the case, if instead they just had instruction where they were encouraged to read, discuss, and deeply think about a text, I don't think we'd see a great deal of difference. Until the research is done that shows that, the sensible thing is to teach comprehension strategies. But I've got this gut suspicion that it's the active engagement with text that is the kind of the the the, the active ingredient in here, the, like the mechanism behind it, rather than like a particular protocol for doing summarizing and then doing, you know, um, self questioning or all the bits and pieces that are involved in things like um, reciprocal reading. Maybe Sam Sims is listening to this episode and thinks, yeah, that's 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 worth a look at. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all the EF, the EF are about to do a great big study on this thing. And all they need to do is have a control group that isn't just business as usual. They just need to have a control group in which the people who aren't getting this thing are still getting um, small, like when they do this with small groups, when they do reciprocal reading with small groups, they need the control small group to have active discussion of text which makes sure that children are doing the are being nudged towards doing the detective work that we want them to do in order to comprehend the text, to recognise their responsibility when it comes to um, engaging with a text without the particular reciprocal reading protocol, the comprehension strategies, for example. Um, but I don't see that happening, sadly. Which is a shame because... So I'd love to know. I can totally see how, obviously, a lot of what these reading... Uh, strategies that I kind of talk about they that's what they're there for to do effectively what they're there to do they're just there to make you think deeply about about the text um yeah the fact that almost none of these don't work that's the thing for me when you look at an intervention they go oh we're doing this comprehension strategy and we'll do this and it works and we do this and it works and we do this almost completely different thing and look that it works you start to look at it and go well okay what's the what's the common denominator here yeah, is it this particular protocol? Is it this particular, you know, oh, we've used a graphic organizer to get them to infer? Or is it this, or is it an adult sitting down with a group of kids, giving them some time and making sure they actively pay attention to text? 
again, there are enough really surprising findings in reading research for me not to like fall off my chair if it turns out that yes, a particular protocol or a particular comprehension strategy is what we need. And it's that that is like the, the secret source here. It isn't just getting kids to actively engage with text. I may well be wrong. It wouldn't really surprise me at all. But right now, I know what my gut says. Yeah. And I think it's um, certainly a lot of, lots of the studies that I kind of look at in my talk, I kind of I, I don't come out too favor favorably in terms of uh, reciprocal teaching or reciprocal reading, um, purely because, you know, I don't think the studies with those are done particularly well. Rosenshine and, say, Meister did some really, really good. In Rosenshine, before he was famous, that's how I always open up that slide, before before he was known for his 10, uh, but actually, you know, 17 principles of instruction, you know, they go through a lot of, um, well, they just reviewed all the literature on what he called reciprocal teaching then, which is effect reciprocal reading is effectively a, offshoot of that they're used pretty uh interchangeably within the literature and he says you know we don't know which of these strategies works which ones why doesn't and then you look at kind of the fact that there were some kids there who were like good decoders but poor comprehenders and they had like 50 sessions of this and it made no difference to their overall stuff at all it's that stuff see that reciprocal teaching stuff you know that's seems a little bit suspect to me but there've been a few more kind of more recent uh papers that seem to have me a little bit more hopeful you know that these things are are worth teaching and i think actually if we kind of discussed you know how i think these should be done in practice probably wouldn't be too dissimilar to the way that chris has said you know i don't want to be teaching these for blocks and blocks on end i think we needed to do a little bit of that initially because we're dealing with you know children in like year three and this idea of just you know yeah let's just ask some who what when why where questions as we're reading this text um you know that will take a while to embed um but you know certainly should be, just be the case and i think you know, importantly if a kid doesn't need to do that to understand then for heaven's sake don't make them do that <laughs> because that's when they learn to hate reading it's when they are forced to use these strategies in some sort of weird convoluted way to you know prove their understanding of the text beyond just you being able to you know tell through discussion that yeah you know they're comprehending it absolutely um a-okay but i agree with chris you know i would love to um see some research on this i think you know the eef does many good things um but i think not having a decent control group here really is uh, missing an opportunity yeah. but yeah like the rosenstein and meister paper that you mentioned the meta-analysis effectively says um First, if you look at comprehension outcomes that aren't from um, uh, a researcher-designed test, but are actually just general kind of standardized comprehension outcomes, the um, the effect size comes right down. Yep. It's still significant, but then it's only significant still when you are comparing it to control groups where the pupils either were business as usual, which is in classroom, reading independently with no help, or where they're given um, what is obviously poor reading instruction. So the, the kids are, um, are shown, uh, read a short chunk of text, the teacher models how to find a main idea, and then the kid is asked to do the same thing. So it's that kind of classic, read a little bit of text and then do something that takes you ages, which isn't 
isn't an equivalent. The reason I think this stuff works is that you're getting kids to actively engage with loads of text. So as a control group, it's um, a pretty poor show. But um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely room for some more, some really interesting research to take place there still. And like as a final thing to know, there's still, you know, the, what I'm talking about here is my own sense of doubt about this body of research, but the sensible evidence-informed thing to do where that doubt exists is to kind of lean into what seems to possibly be the case or what seems to most likely be the case, which is comprehension strategies at the very least do no harm. And it seems to be the case that if we do them this way, it works. I'm just suggesting that maybe there are components of this way that you know, that we can strip out. But until we know, teach comprehension strategies. You know, absolutely. Kids kids are struggling to comprehend even though they're relatively fluent. Do a comprehension strategy intervention. Embed comprehension strategies into your um, teaching of reading. I mean, even if the research suggests otherwise, that, you know, we don't, that actually summarizing or visualizing or self-questioning isn't as valuable as just finding ways to get kids to actively engage with text, Let's do, let's do those things anyway. Getting kids to ask questions of a text they're reading is a really great way to get them to understand the text. Asking them to summarize a text is a great way to get them to understand the text. The focus here though, is using these things for this important ultimate goal of understanding the valuable text that's in front of them rather than, oh, this is like a, a strategy that I want you to use from now on when you struggle with text the only thing i'd say there is before we go to if their fluency is fine before we go to comprehension let's just check vocabulary because i reckon nine times out of ten it's probably of a i think in the terms of like if i was to do a little one of chris's now infamous flow charts on everything uh, for reading intervention it'd be do they know enough of the code yes no go this way can they read the code fluently yes no go that way and that'll be like you know do they have a decent you know, understanding of you know, general vocabulary, tier two-ish vocabulary? And then I'd go to you know, some sort of comprehension intervention. I guess the question there is, if you suspect the vocabulary is an issue, what do you do about it? Do you, because I, I, again, there's decent evidence to suggest, oh, we can put a vocabulary intervention into place. But if you pick apart that research, you find that it's like, brilliant. They learned 20 words in 35 hours. <laughs> it's not quite that bad, but it's not far <laughs> off. You know, and kids are learning kids are learning eight to twelve-ish words per day just from their interactions. So the idea of using that much intervention time, it's like, how do you know they're not just gonna learn that many words like in the classroom anyway? I mean, I know the research suggests that, you know, maybe they do. But all of the ways that you measure the impact of vocabulary research, apart from with the youngest children, tend to be, have they learned the words that are on this list that we wanted to teach them? So you're not really comparing light with light. For me, if a kid's struggling with vocabulary, outside of the very youngest children, where I might put in place um, a kind of quite intense spoken language intervention, um, particularly, say, um, in reception or key stage one, just giving them lots and lots of time to talk and express themselves and to um, have that kind of adult time. Beyond that, if a kid's short of vocabulary, I, I want that to be happening in the rest of my lessons. I want that, that I, I think they're best off learning that from the history and the geography and the science, et cetera, that they do. So one of the reasons why I might not include that in one of my flow diagrams is because there isn't a circumstance that that where that changes my decision-making massively maybe like of that specific text maybe you want to be like okay do you know the words in the specific text that might then give you a further 
vertically to stop putting them, but you know it's either vocabulary, you know it's either a vocabulary issue, which as you say, will get dealt with through various means. And they say it's really tricky to, you know, you can't teach every word in an intervention. That's just you know, silly. Um, but you can at least keep them in the history lessons by not then taking them out for a comprehension strategy intervention if actually they don't need it. And that's actually more of a, uh, let's say just a general, you know, the vocabulary in this particular text was not kind to you because you had no idea what uh, you know, a bewildering warthog was in this particular instance. The only, the only other element of that is just how difficult it is to do kind of vocabulary style assessments, just because again, the domain is so massive that, uh, but yeah, I, I get where you're coming from. If you're a teacher and you think, you know what, they do pay attention to text, but the issue I'm finding on a day-to-day -day basis is they're not understanding the words that are in that, or enough of the words that are in that text. Quite basic stuff, you know, they're in year six, and I was shocked that they didn't know what the word picnic meant, for example. Um, then that might indicate to you that actually, yeah, it's a, it's, it's just, it's a, a, a breadth and depth of vocabulary issue related specifically to the kinds yeah. of stuff we learn in school. So that's something to always bear in mind, because quite often we say, oh, this kid's got issues with vocabulary. And what we mean is this kid doesn't have the particular vocabulary related to the things that we want to teach them and the kind of texts that we use in school. Beyond kind of academic stuff, it might not be the case. Indeed. There's been lots wrapped up inside these sort of slightly bigger ideas. But I haven't heard anyone mention two things yet. One was metacognition and one was motivation. Do you think those two would round off the conversation before we make a decision about what five things our, our teachers need to know? I would say that very briefly, um, it would be before we dive into those. I think it's to, to me at least, there's kind of um, perhaps um, not as much to say about those, except with regards to metacognition to say that a lot of what we've been talking about so far about comprehension strategies is directly related to metacognition, you know, because there's this idea, um, the way that it's stated in the research and is kind of standard or standards of coherence, which is the, the level of um, that, that a reader sets for themselves in terms of how how well they need to understand this text. And it depends on what you're reading. You know, if you're reading uh, a, jo a job description, you might want to know every word and you're going back and you're checking. If you're reading a, um, you know, a romance novel late at night before bed, you might be happy if you, it might be fine if you don't understand the, the old bit, bits and pieces here or there, the old paragraph. But you set a standard of coherence. And one of the things about metacognition is um, recognizing based on that standard of coherence, um, whether your comprehension is where you want it to be and then reacting. And a big part of at least the theory behind um, comprehension strategies is that it's tuning kids into that, into, that, into that idea, into that process, into them go and taking charge, as it were, as I mentioned earlier, of their comprehension um, and recognizing when the standard of coherence that they've set for a text hasn't been met and then rereading or... Um, knowing that you know what i found that tricky i'm going to summarize that in my head before i move on you know that kind of uh, that kind of stuff so i think we have talked a bit about metacognition the thing i would kind of very i say very briefly that'll be a challenge that I'll, I'll try not to spend too long talking about is well what are the bodies of knowledge what what are the interconnected bodies of knowledge that kids need to develop in order to be able to comprehend 
what is it that people know about uh, that allows them to when they're reading a text to uh, build the situation model of it that Neil described. And just for those who are kind of new to this idea, situation model is kind of a mental representation of, of the meaning of a text. We don't remember our own like little version of the text. What we remember is a version of the meaning that we made of that text. You know, it's our own, the gist of it in effect. Um, so what are the bodies of knowledge that allows us to do that? Well, knowledge of words, um, knowledge of texts and knowledge of the world that those two things describe is the short version of that. We've talked about vocabulary, breadth and depth, um, but obviously vocabulary doesn't exist, you know, in isolation. Words exist um, in, in concert with one another. And so how words interact. Um, so we're talking about sentence structure, for example. That's an important piece of the puzzle in terms of what we need to know. Uh, and obviously we need to understand the wider world, but again, that taps into vocabulary. It's impossible to separate what we know about the world from the words that we use to describe it. But there's also other bits and pieces like knowledge of text structure. Neil mentioned subheadings earlier. Knowing what a subheading does, very helpful for understanding a text. Knowing what a paragraph does in or the, the many things that a paragraph can do, really useful for understanding texts. So understanding how texts are put together is uh, really useful as well. In short, kind of vocabulary, worldly knowledge, which is sometimes described as background knowledge when we're talking about a specific text, um, tech, knowledge of text structure and knowledge of sentence structure. Those are all really kind of useful things. And then alongside that, potentially this knowledge related to knowledge and skills related to metacognition that relates to this comprehension strategy st stuff that we've mentioned before. But those kind of that little group of things there, if you know that stuff related to a text, and you can decode it relatively fluently, you're in a pretty good place. Yeah, I think one of the main, um, I'll say fine, but one of the main highlights from the text, from the what you're reading for that you gave today, Chris, was that effectively the, the greater the background knowledge of the text, basically the greater the standard of coherence that um, people generally have when it comes to understanding um, you know, particular texts and things like that. So... And I agree with Chris um, on what he said, you know, we need to understand all of those things. Um, and those things can seem, you know, there's like a real kind of minutiae that you can kind of like go in, you know, understanding, you know, sentences, you can think about that as understanding, uh, you know, different word classes. Like one that comes to my mind is particularly is like pronouns, understanding how like uh, a pronoun might relate to a previous noun um, particularly if there's been a string of nouns, you need to understand how, um, you know, what the word them might be referring to back to, you know, some previous nouns. You know, all of that kind of stuff has, you know, implications for, you know, that situational model, that standard of coherence that, um, you know, we build upon, you know, understanding. You know, Chris mentioned, you know, picnic. You know, if I said, oh, you know, Chris and I you know, spent a lovely day in, uh, you know, Peterborough, had a, had a, had a lovely picnic and I took, um, you know, bought out, you know, two lagers, you know, there's a understanding that these two lagers didn't just, you know, appear from thin air, you know, that's kind of like almost like item and container kind of relationship between the idea that, you know, this idea of this picnic was the container and these two lagers are, you know, two items that have come from that. And, you know, all these kind of linguistic relationships that words have that I think, you know, we just kind of take for granted that you know children and i think when we talk go back to different um 
you know, word, uh, different kind of like question types, you know, those are the things that those question types very rarely actually, uh, you know, discuss at all, because they're not really, you know, in part of those things, kind of really understanding all the, like this kind of linguistic uh, connection, these linguistic connections kind of between these, you know, on this kind of small, you know, word, phrase, sentence level. Just a couple of things, if I may, uh, like kind of build on that a touch. Um, I mentioned before, you know, text structure, sentence structure, vocabulary, worldly knowledge, and it's tempting and useful to look at these things, you know, in separate baskets. But actually, there's loads of overlap between them and divide separating them. It isn't just vocabulary and worldly knowledge that are difficult to separate. It goes beyond that. Neil mentioned um, anaphoric references, the idea of these words that refer back to something that's come before, like um, pronouns. So as you say, you know, we um, we got out the two beers and sat and drank them. Well, them is an anaphoric reference back to this idea of the two beers. Um, and the question is then, OK, so this word them me, me understanding that that ref often will refer back to something that comes before. Well, is that my understanding of the of that word in terms of its vocabulary depth, or is that my understanding of the way that sentences are structured? Well, it's both, I guess. And so, you know, even vocabulary and sentence structure aren't, you know, things that we can completely pick apart. Really, I, I talk about knowledge of words, texts, and the wider world, and in some ways, that's an artificial division as well. What we're really talking about. In terms of this, and I love this phrase, I apologise for using it so many times, these interconnected bodies of knowledge, what we're really talking about is what do you understand about our language in its written form and how it connects to its spoken form. That's what you've got to kind of grasp and, um, and what we have to teach if we're going to support pupils to um, be better at comprehending, comprehending the texts that we choose to put in front of them. With regards to the motivational aspect, Kieran, obviously you just want to make sure, say, the way to build, you know, this interconnected bodies of knowledge, as you know, Chris said, is that eventually students do get to the point where they start learning to read and they begin, you know, reading to learn. So there needs to be, you know, schools can only do so much. There needs to be that motivational aspect. Um, that means that effectively for me, that reading that children see reading as a viable option instead of going on social media instead of playing you know, playstation whatever else that they you know decide to do with their time and so i just i just think whatever you can do to make reading um available to pupils um is going to help motivate them because it's easily for them to act it's easy, easy for them to access as a teacher you know talk about books that you're reading and bring about this idea that you know you are a little reading community if that's what you want to do um I think we can talk about then the research on intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation like you know do we want to re reward those that read with you know stickers and things like that um i think at primary um you know a little bit of uh extrinsic motivation doesn't hurt that much as long as you're not always kind of relying on it to be so and there is you know some idea to you know fade it out and again I think this idea certainly used to be you know this idea that teachers and I'm not talking about decodable texts here that 
teachers would have some sort of say you know the amount of teachers I've seen or I've heard was like oh no you can't read that one mate so that one that one's not for you you know that's going to kill any motivation to read you know dead in the water if all you have to do is you know the old kind of book bands idea and there's you know some idea of you know instructional level stuff that you know oh you know accelerated reader has said you can only read books between this point and this point how dare you choose something that might interest you you've been trying to throw the cat amongst the pigeons a few times kieran and so i'm going to intentionally pick up on something neil said there and say that i i don't like it you know and that's hard to do because we agree on so much the dichotomy of learning to read and reading to learn I, I, and this is harsh because I know that you will probably already think this, but I'm saying anyway, I really dislike that dichotomy just because I just don't think it really exists. Like I think that um, even as an adult reading a challenging book, picking up new vocabulary, um, becoming more comfortable with particular kind of ways of structuring texts, I, I think we're always learning to read. And so it, on some level, I don't think it's just... You know, we've learned to read and now we're reading to learn. Not a fan of that dichotomy. I understand why it's popular, just not a fan. On on the other hand, what I do love that Neil said is this, you know, talking about motivation. And what I'd like, just maybe a final thing to say on, on the kind of topic of reading comprehension, at least on, on my part, is that I think we can maybe tie together these ideas of like interconnected bodies of knowledge and developing people's understanding of them with motivation by um, thinking about the texts that we choose to put in front of pupils, not in terms of their independent reading necessarily, but in terms of the reading that we ask of them in a classroom situation. It's very tempting to just, you know, find extracts and get kids to ask questions. And sometimes it's easier to plan that way. And sometimes it can feel like you're, you know, doing something towards SATs outcomes and 99 times out of hundred, that isn't the case. I would say, Genuinely, the texts that we choose for um, for pupils to learn from in our classroom are as important as the way that we choose to teach them. Because in the end, if we're saying that this content, this understanding of the language, of what of the the, the concepts and the objects in the wider world that these uh, that this language relates to, that knowing this stuff is essential to pupils' understanding of what they read then it really matters what we put in front of kids. It matters if they are not learning about certain things or not seeing certain kinds of language or seeing certain kinds of plot structures, et cetera, et cetera, in the books that we put in front of children. So if there's like one final message that I think both um, relates to this idea of motivation, because I do think that we can motivate pupils through the choices of texts that we, um, that we have in our school curriculum and kind of connects to this idea of, teaching pupils these interconnected bodies of knowledge than it is text choice and the primacy of it in primary education. So we've got to filter all this down to five things. I'm going to throw a grenade in at those cats and pigeons while you guys think about your five. Someone shared a picture of an old school SATS reading paper. In reference to what post-2016 looked like, do you think that represents a rise in standards? Or is it a per proxy? And it's actually testing things that we aren't wouldn't necessarily associate with reading. 
capacity. I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think, unless I'm mistaken, having seen the, the tweet in question, that that was one of the rare occasions where um, multiple choice questions, which is the easiest of all of the kinds of questions that children face, were also the first set of questions that children faced in the entire paper. So I think that gives a, and it might be, if that's if that's questions that come later on, then I'm wrong about that. But if I'm right about that, then I think that gives a, uh, it, it's, it looks, it looks easy because it's the easiest possible beginning. I want to see the questions that existed at the end of that paper before I rushed to any particular judgments about the kind of rise in standards generally i think where we do see a rise in standards though is the actual like the booklet itself the actual reading content the length of it in particular it's been getting longer and uh, longer these texts um but i don't i don't necessarily think that that is a particularly um good example of um the test getting more difficult that's worth seven marks like i've not seen like even when just thinking about multiple choice questions that children face now I don't even think even among the across the three texts that, you know, seven marks are available just on the multiple choice questions. So I guess, you know, from there, you could argue that perhaps, you know, this rising raise in standards by, you know, having fewer marks available for those questions. I certainly think there's less hints as to where they are. So usually we might say, you know, look at page nine, you know, what does so-and-so think? You know, again, we're recording this on the day of the 2023 reading stats. Obviously, we can't give too much detail away, but... Not for free, anyway. <laughs> Not for free. I mean, I'll just clarify that I obviously have no access to these papers, so... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't either. So is there no not much on the way of multiple choice this year? No, that's what a lot of the hoo-ha is about, is the... Oh, fair of... enough, then. I mean... Cut what I said then, because I don't have access to this year's either. But there's usually some multiple choice, and it's usually yeah. worth a few marks. If they've cut the multiple choice this year, then, yeah, please cut what I said. It makes no sense whatsoever. They haven't cut, they haven't cut it completely, but there's certainly, like, there's definitely less than seven across the three texts when, in, you know, in that one... Oh, yeah, fair enough, then. I mean, that's seven probably... available there. If this then is in like an indirect, if this is a specific reference to this year's paper that existed today and that I don't know about, then um, yet I will. It might well be. Then yeah. fair enough. Yeah. Yes. Please cut what I said there. Um, or don't. Or don't. Yeah. Really just fucking like throw me to the wolves. I mean, from 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 my perspective, it seems like the is cognitive demand the the sort of attribute we we assign to. The difficulty of questions so for instance multiple choice question has a low cognitive demand yeah some sort of um you know question that depends on inference and a lot of prior background knowledge might be something with a high cognitive demand and um, it feels like that's more difficult which is why i'm not sure you know that there's a there's a greater cognitive demand in terms of access in the paper than there used to be and you could game the the old papers quite quite easily you know, you could send pupils to certain points and say, this is what you got to do to get this bit. This is what you got to do to get this bit. And you probably go through and do all the retrieval questions and be very close to a level three, level four. Um, I don't, it doesn't feel like you can do that anymore. Although to be fair, all I've really done in the last four or five is just to visualize the reading paper as opposed to 
have any input into the instruction. Mm. So I, I don't know the answer, but that's what it feels like. And I thought that picture was quite a good example of it. Yeah, I'd definitely say the cognitive demand of the questions has gone up and they were definitely not as kind in terms of pinpointing where one might find the answer to these questions. So the range was quite large, whereas usually it might say, uh, you know, look at this line or look at this particular paragraph, find the answer to whatever question it is. You know, now it was far more broad of either, you know, look from the paragraph starting X to the paragraph that ends Y. And, you know, the question, the answer to the question itself, you know, that might be two or three, three or four paragraphs um, of text, whereas, you know, it does feel like in the old, uh, certainly not in the old SATs, but in previous SATs, you know, they would have narrowed that window to where you found the answer, which of course then relies on children, you know, being able to, you know, skim quite a fair bit. And again, going back to, you know, these um, construction integration model, you know, have they been able to do a decent enough of those ones on that kind of first read to make sure they have a a gist as Chris said about you know roughly where that might be in that paper so they can just quickly skim to find what they need um etc etc I personally found the text um you know acceptable I didn't think the text were the hardest text that we've um had as a collection but again I think the cognitive demand of the questions as well as the support there to find the answers um, did increase yeah and there's a couple of points here as well isn't there which is that um in the end, the difficulty of this kind of stuff is primarily dictated by the difficulty of the text. Yep. I mean, you can give me a load of multiple, you can give these kids a load of multiple choice questions, but if the text in front of them is crime and punishment, then they're <laughs> not gonna they're probably not gonna get that far. In the end, it's worth noting, I think, that the difficulty of any reading paper is primarily, not solely, but primarily dictated by the difficulty of the text. And that's not just as we mentioned earlier, the length of the text. It's the, um, the complexity of the sentence structures. It's the vocabulary. It's all the things that we've um, discussed in fact. And the second thing I guess to know is that presumably the, 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 the boundaries for pass as it were, or for different, um, uh, the different number scores that people, the different standardized number scores that kids are gonna get will be shifted around based on how kids do. So this idea of a, oh, it was a difficult paper, or it was a, an easy paper, doesn't really mean anything in the end, does it, hugely? Unless, I don't think they decide in advance where the grade boundaries are going to be. Um, or if they do, then they do so in relation to some kind of pre-testing kind of uh, metric. I know that's what they did back in the day. Um, but even so, in short, a difficult test is going to have a different kind of, for want of a better phrase, grade boundaries than an easier one so it doesn't you know make a hill of beans difference apart from i guess how pupils feel about the test as they do it which is obviously something that's worth bearing in mind okay so i mean that was an interesting diversion um i don't think we actually landed on anything concrete but i can uh yeah i don't maybe there isn't a the existence of a of a definite answer um, and all these things are very highly politically subjective but if we had to summarize the five things that every teacher needs to know about reading comprehension, what do you think those five things are? Real them off, Chris. Hard to summarize, um, fairly wide ranging discussion, but thankfully I've got some notes in front of me from what we talked about. Um, so first, thinking about comprehension, 
it is um, something that is particularly challenging to do, if not close to impossible to do without a certain level of reading fluency. So we need to think and we need to make sure that pupils are uh, relatively fluent as part of um, their reading curriculum in order to support um, comprehension, while remembering that there is this reciprocal relationship between comprehension and fluency, and they, they support each other. I guess the second thing is that it isn't really effective to attempt to teach reading comprehension via the teaching of particular question types. Getting kids to be able to answer particular kinds of questions is not a very efficient way to um, support their comprehension development. And why is that? Well, because we it doesn't really seem to make sense to think of comprehension as this skill-based construct where one something that you learn automatically transfers to a completely different text. Um, the third thing is that comprehension depends upon our knowledge of language, um, both the written language and the spoken language upon which it relies. Um, and so that means we're supporting pupils' development of words, texts, and their knowledge of the wider world. I guess the fourth thing is we need to think about the teaching of comprehension strategies, um, either or both through interventions and embedded into classroom instruction. Now, the key thing about these comprehension strategies is they support pupils' um, kind of metacognition for reading. They are ways that we can awaken pupils to how active they need to be, to the kind of detective work that we want them to do as they read. And I guess the final thing is that when it comes to a reading curriculum and the development of comprehension, the texts that you choose to um, teach to children and read with children are as important as how we teach them, not just for the development of these interconnected bodies of knowledge I mentioned, but also for the development of pupils' motivation as independent readers. Fantastic. So hopefully that summary will help. I mean, it certainly helped me clarify my thoughts because we covered quite a lot in this episode. Obviously, both Neil and Chris, you have spoken about reading in various ways on thinking deeply about primary education you know whether that be through individual episodes or neil on the on youtube you delivered some cpd um, about reading quite a while ago now and um, so if anyone this is the first time you're coming to this definitely go back and check it out and i think on spotify i've got a playlist with the title reading so if you if you search on spotify for tadape reading you'll get everything that uh, has the that the sort of label of reading against it so uh, yeah it might be worth uh, checking out all i have to do is say thank you very much for joining me thank you very much neil thank you very much thank you chris thank you and everyone at home until next time thanks for listening <laughs> yeah, so, when I'm reading Dostoevsky, cultural literature is superior to yours. I've not actually read any of his work in in years, in years. <laughs> <laughs>